What is going on, my psychos, my sweet psychos? Welcome back to another brand new episode of Air Unknown, a mystery podcast. And happy Halloween! It's Halloween week, my favorite holiday, obviously. Um, and I'm super excited uh, for this episode today. Um, but bummed because there's nothing to do this week. I mean, there's no parties, no shows, no get-togethers. It's going to be a different year for sure. Um, but hopefully you guys are fully stocked with plenty of scary stories and movies to keep you entertained this week. And hopefully I can help you out with a little bit of that. In today's episode, I am going to be telling you guys the internet's scariest stories. Um, and I scoured the internet long and hard for, to find these. And Reddit pulled through for me again, because it always does, because Reddit is incredible. But I wanted to preface this episode by making a quick disclaimer. I know that there has been some controversy as of late in the Reddit world um, in terms of um, YouTubers and podcasters using Reddit authors' stories um, on their platforms without giving credit or without sharing ad revenue with these authors. And I think it's terrible. And I wanted to make sure that everybody knows that you need to credit an author's work when you read it aloud on your platform. So I wanted to also make sure that you all know that I will be 100%, I have and always will, credit the author before I read their story on this podcast and also include a link to their Reddit account in the description of the podcast. So you will always have a direct route, a direct link right to their work and um, you'll be able to support them directly and read their material. Um, so I just wanted to make that clear and also the fact that I do not gain any anything financially from this podcast. Um, I do not make money from this podcast. This is purely something I do out of joy and for entertainment purposes only. And I genuinely believe that these authors deserve to have their stories read. So that being said, let's get into this brand new episode of Error Unknown. These are some of the internet's creepiest, scariest stories. This first story comes from Reddit user BeBabyTurnsBlue. I grew up in a densely forested rural area in central Virginia, and like most kids my age, 10 at the time of this story, I spent a lot of time playing in and around the woods. My best friend and I had found a creek one day while exploring different deer trails. 
This creek we happened on was a very rare find and the perfect spot for us to play. It was wide and deep enough to swim around in and had a nice, soft, mossy bank on either side to rest on after we've tired ourselves out. The water is cool and clear, no copperheads and no mosquitoes because the water was constantly running. We were psyched. After a few hours of swimming, we had to walk back home for lunch, but made plans to pack lunch the next day so we could have a picnic on the creek banks and spend the whole day there. The next morning, we set out for the woods at around 1 p.m., planning to have a picnic first and swim after. We entered at the same spot we had the previous day and followed what we thought was the same deer trail. It was not. At the point where we should have found the creek, we walked into a small clearing that was covered in huge, thick ferns. We had definitely never walked past this before, so being both hungry and tired of walking, we decided to eat in the clearing. We laughed, played around there for a while, spitting watermelon seeds at each other from our lunch. It was an absolute blast, and we were both in wonderful, giddy moods. That all changed, however, as soon as we packed up and set back out to find the creek. As we walked on, the woods started to feel darker and colder. We got skittish, and I noticed my friend kept whipping her head around to look behind us. After about a half hour of walking, we came upon what looked like an entire overgrown bathroom. A sink, toilet, and a bathtub, all sitting arranged together and covered in ivy. It's pretty common to find weird stuff like this in the middle of the woods, so we just walked on and made jokes to lighten the mood, calling it Bigfoot's bathroom. After another hour of walking and not seeing anything we recognized, we started to panic. Instead of trying to reach the creek, we were now just trying to find our way back home, or at least out of the woods. I told her we should follow the sun, and eventually we would come up on a road or someone's property where we could find help. She insisted on another way, and we began yelling at each other out of fear and, let's be honest, little girl bossiness. I told her if she thought she was so right, she should just go her way, and we would see who got out first. So we split up. Now, as an adult, I fully acknowledge I was being a stubborn brat and also an idiot. Worst possible thing we could have done. Not 10 minutes after splitting up, I began to hear someone walking maybe 100 feet behind me. Thinking it was my friend deciding to go my way after all, I slowed down so she could catch up to me. Instead, whatever it was matched my pace. I slow down, it slows down. I stop, it stops. This went on for hours. The whole time, I was going back and forth on whether or not it was in my head or there really was something following me. I picked up a big stick, swung it around a few times to make sure it was sturdy if I had to hit someone, and trucked on. As it began to get dark, I came upon something that made my heart sink into my stomach. It was Bigfoot's bathroom. I had just walked in a huge circle for hours, despite being 100% sure I was following the setting sun west the entire time. Confused and frustrated, I sat down on a log and just screamed my little heart out while smacking my stick repeatedly into the ground. As I tried to collect myself, I heard the footsteps again, walking up from behind me. 
I called out to my friend as loud as I could. No answer. Then after a short pause, the steps began to run towards me. I jumped up and booked it as fast as I could in the opposite direction. Now this is the truly horrifying part, which I typically omit while telling people this story. As I was sprinting through the darkening woods, I began to hear what I thought were church bells. I looked up to see the darkest, deepest cloud I have seen in my entire life. In the middle, it was so black, it was like looking into the night sky, and the dark gray around it seeming to be swirling. It gave me a horrible feeling to look at, almost like the nausea you get when looking through binoculars too long. What sickened me further is that I realized the sound of the bells was coming through the hole in the cloud. They were deafeningly loud. I mean, really booming out of this thing. When I realized this, I stopped dead in my tracks. I felt a sense of absolute and overwhelming dread that has gone unmatched in all of my 24 years on this planet. Something in my head began screaming that if I did not run away from whatever the hell that cloud was, no one would ever see me again. I would be gone. I didn't want to run toward the thing chasing behind me either though, so I made a sharp right and took off away from both. It was now completely dark, and I was running blind through the woods, smacking through branches, wheezing, and tripping every few feet for what seemed like an hour, until I smacked into something low and flew over it, hitting the ground so hard all the air in my lungs was knocked out of me. As I lay there, trying to recover, I realized I couldn't hear the bells anymore. My eyes adjusted more to the dark, and I realized what had just made me go ass over teeth was an old fence. Grabbing hold of it, I prayed it would lead me to a farm, and sure enough, it did. I walked up over a hill about a mile to the back of a farmhouse, explained what happened, and the farmer graciously gave me a ride back home. I was covered head to toe in scrapes, oozing blood, and more exhausted than I had ever been in my life, but I was finally safe. It was past 9 p.m. when I finally walked through my front door. My friend had gotten back shortly after we split and figured I had as well, so hadn't told anybody I was lost, and my family just figured I was still out after dark, which wasn't uncommon for me. They were shocked when I walked in beat up and crying. Nobody had been looking for me at all. To this day, I wonder how long they would have waited to come find me if I hadn't been lucky enough to find the fence, and if it would have been too late. This next story is by Reddit user Blue Tidal. About five years ago, I lived downtown in a major city in the US. I've always been a night person, so I would often find myself bored after my roommate, who was decidedly not a night person, went to sleep. To pass the time, I used to go for long walks and spend the time thinking. I spent four years like that, walking alone at night, and never once had any reason to feel afraid. I always used to joke with my roommate that even the drug dealers in the city were polite. But all of that changed in just a few minutes of one evening. 
It was Wednesday, somewhere between 1 and 2 in the morning, and I was walking near a police-patrolled park quite a ways away from my apartment. It was a quiet night, even for a weeknight, with very little traffic and almost no one on foot. The park, as it was most nights, was completely empty. I turned down a short side street in order to loop back to my apartment when I first noticed him. At the far end of the street on my side was a silhouette of a man, dancing. It was a strange dance, similar to a waltz, but he finished each box with an odd forward stride. I guess you could say he was dance walking, headed straight for me. Decided he was probably drunk, I stepped as close as I could to the road to give him the majority of the sidewalk to pass me by. The closer he got, the more I realized how gracefully he was moving. He was very tall and lanky and wearing an old suit. He danced closer still until I could make out his face. His eyes were open wide and wild, head tilted back slightly looking off at the sky. His mouth was formed in a painfully wide cartoon of a smile. Between the eyes and the smile, I decided to cross the street before he danced any closer. I took my eyes off him to cross the empty street. As I reached the other side, I glanced back and then stopped dead in my tracks. He had stopped dancing and was standing with one foot in the street perfectly parallel to me. He was facing me, but still looking skyward, smile still wide on his lips. I was completely and utterly unnerved by this. I started walking again, but kept my eyes on the man. He didn't move. Once I had put about a half a block between us, I turned away from him for a moment to watch the sidewalk in front of me. The street and the sidewalk ahead were completely empty. Still unnerved, I looked back to see where I'd been standing to find him gone. For the briefest of moments, I felt relieved, until I noticed him. He had crossed the street and was now slightly crouched down. I couldn't tell for sure due to the distance and the shadows, but I was certain he was facing me. I had looked away from him for no more than ten seconds, so it was clear that he had moved fast. I was so shocked that I stood there for some time, just staring at him. And then he started moving towards me again. He took giant, exaggerated, tiptoed steps, as if he were a cartoon character sneaking up on someone, except he was moving very, very quickly. I'd like to say at this point I ran away, or pulled out my pepper spray, or my cell phone, or anything at all, but I didn't. I just stood there completely frozen as the smiling man crept toward me. And then he stopped again, about a car length away from me, still smiling his smile, still looking to the sky. When I finally found my voice, I blurted out the first thing that came to mind. What I meant to ask was, what do you want? In an angry, commanding tone. What came out was a whimper. What do you... Regardless of whether or not humans can smell fear, they can certainly hear it. I heard it in my own voice, and that only made me more afraid. But he didn't react to it at all. 
he just stood there, smiling. And then, after what felt like forever, he turned around very slowly and started dance walking away. Just like that. Not wanting to turn my back to him again, I just watched him go until he was far enough away to almost be out of sight. And then I realized something. He wasn't moving away anymore, nor was he dancing. I watched in horror as the distant shape of him grew larger and larger. He was coming back my way. And this time, he was running. I ran too. I ran until I was off the side road and back onto a better lit road with sparse traffic. Looking behind me then, he was nowhere to be found. The rest of the way home, I kept glancing over my shoulder, always expecting to see his stupid smile, but he was never there. I lived in that city for six months after that night, and I never went out for another walk. There was something about his face that always haunted me. It didn't look drunk. He didn't look high. He looked completely and utterly insane, and that's a very, very scary thing to see. This next story is by Reddit user Christian is Lost 72. In the early 80s, I lived in Okinawa, Japan. My dad thought that seeing the world would be an adventure that would help my brother and I become better men, and I have to say I think he was right. Being in the military showed me cultures many would never get to experience, and I'm thankful for every experience that life gave to me even the scary ones. While we lived in Japan, my father wanted us to have a fully immersive experience, so he chose to move us into a small Japanese neighborhood off base. We lived in a little house at the top of an enormous hill in a cul-de-sac that overlooked, I kid you not, part of a huge zoo and on one side a fairly large cemetery. Our particular house was set far above the monkey habitats about a mile downhill. Between us and those habitats was nothing but thick Indiana Jones-style jungle. Jungle the neighborhood kids and I would tromp through endlessly, ignoring the local warnings about poisonous snakes and ancient untripped mines from World War II. We were the only American family living in the cul-de-sac and completely surrounded by Japanese families. It was amazing. The kids loved us, and although we couldn't communicate through language very well, we understood each other perfectly, well, most of the time. Opposite us was an older couple with a lush garden surrounding their property. The older woman wanted us to call her Mama-san, and she had us helping in her garden whenever she could coax us over with green tea and chocolate banana cookies. We loved her. She was so welcoming and generous, as was everyone else. We lived in a wonderful neighborhood. The only drawback to Mama-san's home, however, was that she directly overlooked the cemetery. And that cemetery was unlike any cemetery I had ever seen before. Because Okinawa is an island, burials don't happen very often. Instead, above-ground crypts are built, many of them built into the sides of hills that make up the island. The crypts are large, made of huge arcs of polished stone set over a large square of that stone, which has a square insert cut into the middle of it for the coffin to be placed inside. 
Once inside the square, is inset with another piece of polished stone just inside, leaving a kind of shelf on the outside, so offerings could be made to lost loved ones. Yen, food, flowers, and incense are some of the offerings given. Below Mama-san's house was a valley that swooped back up into another hill opposite her home. That valley and both hills were covered with these crypts, and spider-webbing up and down through the crypts were various stone step pathways that were old and badly maintained. It was quite a sight. One evening, Mama-san asked me to come visit with her alone. She had something to show me, but it was only for me as the older brother. Intrigued and a bit proud, I agreed. She took me to the back of her garden and sat me on a thick wooden bench that was carved with scenes of fishermen and men with swords and told me she had a story to tell. Mama-san then disappeared for a few minutes and soon returned with a tray that held hot green tea and sweet rice cakes. Sitting next to me, she smiled and commented on the colors of the evening sky as the sun began to lower. Mama-san said she had seen me and my brother and some other kids daring each other to follow the stairway path down into the cemetery. You have to understand, the path from our little home area down to the cemetery consisted of hundreds of steps, many broken or cracking in and out of bushes and at a steep incline. It would be very dangerous for anyone, but the real test was seeing how long we could take walking through the crypts at night. Mama-san wanted to explain why that was a very bad idea. Many years ago, during the war, Americans were thought to be devils. Monsters that would murder innocent citizens for no reason other than to kill. That fear was the product of wartime propaganda, used to encourage young men to military service and farmers to fight alongside them. But many didn't. Many ran. And with nowhere to go, nowhere to hide, hundreds of Japanese citizens hurled themselves off of a cliffside rather than face torture at the hands of their perceived enemy. I was terrified at hearing this. I had no idea that this had happened. I was mortified and hit with such sadness I started to cry. The sun was setting, and the sky went from pink and blue to a deep orange and red. Mama-san reached out and held my hand, telling me not to worry. This was in the past, and the past is something we must always remember so we never go back. She went on with her story. One young woman had followed through with this sacrifice with her two children, but she survived the fall. She was in a coma for months. When she did regain consciousness, she was horrified to realize she was not with her children. They had been buried somewhere in that cemetery below, in an unmarked crypt that held many others. The woman would spend days and nights searching the cemetery, crying in pain. The torment of her loss unbearable. Until the day she threw herself into the ocean to hopefully be reunited with her lost family. They say she never found her children. Her act of suicide doomed her to purgatory. She would remain tortured for eternity. The sun had disappeared. The cemetery drowned in inky blackness. 
the main path dotted with dim broken lights feebly illuminating small areas. Mama-san continued. She still wanders the cemetery, she said, looking for her kids. You can hear her crying. And then she pointed down. I didn't want to, but I did. I looked. In the back of the cemetery, in the darkness, there was a white figure. At first, a bright white shimmer, moving slowly, kind of shaking. It moved from side to side, like it was moving among the crypts, and you could actually hear the crying. Softly at first, but then a low moan and whimpers of pain as it got closer. I was terrified. I wanted to run, but Mama-san held my hand and whispered that she wouldn't come up here. We were too far. But that's why we shouldn't go down there after dark. She said many don't know her story and call her the White Witch, which angers her. It's best to stay away. It's best to pray for her. Mama-san said she comes out to see her often, hoping one day she'll find her salvation. Needless to say, I never went down to that cemetery. Not once. And I never sat back there with Mama-san again either. That was enough for me. I did, however, visit Suicide Hill. It's called Peace Prayer Park now, out of respect. I cried the whole time we were there. I prayed for all the souls and for forgiveness. So many Japanese citizens spoke to us, welcoming us, telling us stories, sharing with us. I didn't feel worthy, and my love for the country and its people was overwhelming. I'll never forget my time there. I'd like to go back to see if she's still there, wandering the graves looking for her children. This next story is by Reddit user Worcester underscore street. My wife Steph and I have been together for about two years now. We met at college and hit it off right away. Steph was orphaned when she was very young, so she had been raised by her grandfather until she went off to school and met me. I didn't know much about her grandfather, other than he was extremely protective of her, almost verging on paranoid. Still, he passed away before I got the chance to meet him, so I never really gave him much thought other than to comfort Steph. That was until we found out that he owned something like 900 acres of forest. Steph was his only living descendant, so she was given the deed and a keyring pertaining to a house that she'd never seen before. What a 23-year-old girl was going to do with all that, I don't know. All I know was that when she told me about her new land, I knew we had to go check it out. As I drove up, I asked her if she had ever been to the house in the forest before. She said, listen, I didn't even know this land existed. I have no idea why Gramps would keep it from me. It was pretty clear that she was still taking his death pretty hard. No wonder, really, he basically raised her, after all. The drive up to the mountains from our college took a couple hours. The forest was thick with pine and oak trees growing close to the road. The further we got from civilization, the worse the roads got. Potholes, broken branches, and even grass had begun to sprout out in some places. Our plan was to stay the night at the house, but if that didn't pan out, we'd brought a tent as well. 
our GPS had us turn off on a gravel road. This road wound and twisted around turns and rocky outcroppings. It was pretty clear that it was leading us down into a valley. After half an hour or so on this new road, we saw the house out in front of us. It had clearly been abandoned for decades. I had brought my camera with us, so I took a picture of it right as we stepped out of the car. Steph was pretty clearly disappointed. Well, I guess it was too much to hope someone would be caring for it after all this time, she said. Stretching my legs after all that time in the car was really nice. Steph walked up to the house to check it out, and I warned her that the ground might be rotted out, and be careful. I started walking around the house and took another picture. I came back to the house and walked in the front door. The inside was a mess, all rotted wood and dirt. I was honestly surprised it was still standing at all. I stuck my head back outside and my eye caught on something. There was a tree growing just to the right of the house. I saw four long, deep claw marks on it. A few months old at least. I raised my camera and took a picture. That was when I heard Steph's shriek. I ran back around the front of the house and saw her standing in front of something rotten. When I took a closer look, I saw it was a deer carcass. I told Steph that we were most definitely in bear country, then took a picture of the deer. Only thing was, it looked like the deer had been cut open with a bunch of razor blades. Bears don't normally do that. The sun soon set after that. We took our tent inside the house and found a nice flat spot to set it up. I busted out my gas grill and made us a couple of hamburgers. We were sitting in our camp chairs inside the house and feeling pretty good by the time it got completely dark. Steph was looking at me pretty amazed. I asked her why she was so surprised. It's just, I've never been camping before. It's different than I imagined. She looked down at her phone. Less cell service, at least. I decided to ask some more about Steph's grandpa. Why do you think he never told you about any of this? And why didn't he ever take you camping? I asked. I don't know. I went on for a while about how cool I thought the property was. Plans for future parties with friends, bonfires, all that. Clouds had rolled in, so all the light was just from our little lantern that I'd brought. Pretty soon, we headed inside the tent, zipped up the door, and were ready for bed. Steph had already fallen asleep when it happened. All the sounds from outside, all the crickets and birds and owls all stopped in an instant. Laying in my sleeping bag inside the tent, the silence was deafening. That's when I heard it. A distant clicking noise echoed out from the forest. I lay in silence, trying to guess what kind of animal might have made that sound. It was so loud that Steph actually woke up next to me and asked what it was. I told her I didn't know. Then I heard the clicking noise again, extremely close. So close, like it might have been right next to the house. I slipped out of my sleeping bag, still inside the tent, and grabbed my camera. I walked up to the tent door and zipped it down as quietly as I could. Then I stuck the camera out into the darkness and took a picture. In the flash of the camera, I saw a hand 
reaching through the broken window of the house. It almost looked human, but it was deathly white and had long claws extending from each finger. Through the window, I saw what looked like a human silhouette with two bright yellow eyes staring in towards us. I can't be sure, but it looked like there was blood around its mouth. I pulled the camera back and zipped the tent door closed. Steph sat up. What is it? she asked. I moved next to her and covered her mouth with my hand my heart racing, and I felt all the hairs on my body standing up. I had no idea what I was supposed to do. Silence. For a long moment, I heard nothing. Then the clicking sound echoed out from where I knew the front door of the house was. Steph stared at me, her eyes clearly confused and afraid. She put her hand on mine and tried to pull it away, but I shook my head and didn't take it off. Silence again. I strained to hear, but nothing. For what must have been two minutes, I sat with my hand on Steph's mouth. Then I heard the clicking from just a few feet outside our tent door. I have no idea how it got so close without making any sound. I froze for a moment, then as quietly as I could, I reached into my pants laying on the ground and pulled out my car keys. I hit the unlock button twice. My car's horn beeped loudly from where we'd parked it in front of the house. Silence again. Finally, after what seemed like an eternity, I heard the clicking from where my car was parked in front of the house. The clicking echoed out a few more times, but each one was further and further away. After a half hour or so, the cricket started back up and the forest sounded alive again. Steph stared at me. What did you see? I told her to get dressed and be ready to run. We got dressed in the tent and I opened the door. We ran to where my car was, jumped in it and sped away. I didn't stop until we reached home. The next morning I went out to my car and saw something on the hood. I'll insert all of the photos from this story on my Instagram account if you guys want to check them out. This next and final story was posted by Reddit user Saint underscore Entropy. In one corner of my grandma's living room stood a lamp that was almost never turned off. She would change the bulb every week like clockwork waiting until the afternoon sunlight poured through the windows and filled the room. Even then, she hurried, holding her breath until the deed was done and the lamp was back on. I would ask her about it once in a while. Each time, she would smile softly, toss all my hair, and promptly change the subject. I didn't learn the truth until I was 13, the first time I turned off the lamp. I just wanted to see what would happen Grandma screamed when she walked into the darkened living room, a plate of cookies falling from her hand and crashing to the floor. I could hear her praying under her breath as she raced to turn the light back on. Tears were shining in her eyes when she turned to me, her lips pressed thin. Without warning, she slapped me hard across the face. Grandma had never so much as raised her voice before. 
and I was too shocked to cry. She cried enough for the both of us, gathering me up in her arms and begging for my forgiveness. With her face buried in my shoulder, she finally told me about the lamp. It was a ghost light, she said. Ever since she and my grandpa had bought the house back when they first arrived in America, the spirits of the dead had plagued her. Only when her burden threatened to drive her mad did she ask grandpa for help. She had expected him to laugh her out of the house, but he had surprised her by nodding gravely. It was he who had first lit the ghost light, and as long as that beacon burned through the darkness, she had never seen another spirit. I stopped visiting my grandma after that. It started gradually at first, missing a day here and there, but by the time I received news of her death, I hadn't seen her in over 10 years. As her only living relative, I shouldn't have been surprised when I inherited her house. Yet as I sat in her lawyer's office, listening to him read her will, I was speechless. I had a difficult time paying attention after that, absorbed as I was with the business of remembering. So much love had filled those walls, so many happy memories. As I thought of my tiny, sterile apartment in the city, I quickly made my decision. I was almost overwhelmed by emotion as I walked through the front door. Everything looked exactly as I had remembered it from my childhood. House plants still cluttered the windowsills, decorative bird plates still hung on the walls, and the ghost light still burned in the living room. Seeing the old lamp sent a chill down my spine. I froze in my tracks, the smile fading from my lips, and I couldn't help but think of the night Grandma had slapped me so many years ago. I had told my mother about the ghost light the next day, but she had dismissed it as simple old-world superstition. It was the same way when she was growing up, she told me, and I shouldn't worry about it. Still, I couldn't shake the conviction that I had finally seen the true depths of my grandma's lunacy. I ran my fingers through the fringe on the lampshade as I thought, a bloom of sadness darkening my nostalgia. Sighing heavily, I turned the ghost light off with a decisive click. Something woke me up later that night. I lay in bed, listening to the darkness, until I heard scratching coming from the living room. Rats were the last thing I wanted to deal with at the moment, and I rolled over with a groan, determined to ignore it until the morning. But the scratching continued intermittently, constantly jerking me from the edge of sleep, and I finally had enough. I threw the blankets off me and stormed out into the hall. Moonlight flooded the front of the house, and I didn't bother turning on the lights as I made my way to the living room. I knew every inch of the house, even after so many years, and I moved confidently through the dim light. I was furious at having been woken from a dead sleep, and my anger ill-prepared me for what I found. An elderly woman was crouching in the corner, her gaunt back to me. She was scratching at the floor where the walls met, stopping every few minutes to cock her head. A gnarl of dread unfurled in the pit of my stomach. I had no idea how this woman had gotten into my house and thought it was obvious she needed help. It took me some time to summon the courage to approach her. My hand shook as I reached out to gently squeeze her shoulder. 
I meant to ask her where she lived, who her caretaker was, but the words were driven from my mind when she turned and I saw her face. Her eyes were solid black, bottomless pits that didn't reflect the moonlight. Her jaw hung impossibly open, unhinged, and the dark tunnel of her mouth spiraled down into her throat. I had a moment to realize who she was, to recognize the familiar map of wrinkles in her face, the curls of wispy hair. Then my grandma screamed. I shrieked, stumbled backwards, away from the nightmare in the corner. My arms flailed in the air, reaching for the nearest lamp, and my hands touched the ghost light. I yanked the chain, filling the room with light, and she was gone. I never turned off the ghost light after that. After letting the bulb burn down one evening, I began changing it every week, just as Grandma had. Eventually I got married, and luckily for me, my wife was tolerant of my strange fixation on the lamp. The light continued to burn, and I lived my life happily enough. But my grandson has been asking about the ghost light lately. Each time he asks, I smile softly, tossle his hair, and promptly change the subject. For some reason, I can't bring myself to tell him the truth. I think about how I pulled away from my grandma and how I thought her crazy and I kept my mouth shut. I worry though. I know I won't be around forever and just as I know, he will eventually turn off the ghost light. I worry that he might see me then, twisted and wrong, scratching in the corner.